God's word in a way that they can understand and um, really appreciate that very much. Those that serve in nursery, um, giving families the opportunity to be to worship undistracted, we appreciate that very much as well. We're going to be continuing today our little mini-series here in January on God's Word. For the last couple of weeks, Pastor John has spoken on the priority of God's Word from Psalm 119. Um, We're going to continue this topical approach, and today's topic is the powerful word from a powerful God. And we're going to be covering a lot of passages of Scripture today. It's going to be a little bit like a junior high sword drill. Um, I have put the passages on the screen, so if you'd rather just focus on that and rather than you know, try to turn, that's fine, but would love to hear pages rustling to, turning to the different passages so you can see it for yourself in your Bible. So we are going to dig in now uh, to this powerful, powerful word that we have. And I was thinking about powerful things in our world, trying to draw an analogy that maybe we could latch on to and help us to connect a little bit with this concept. I, I had recalled that I had seen an announcement um, about a month ago, just before Christmas, about um, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, which I had never heard of before. But they had been conducting an experiment where they took about 200 lasers and they were focusing it on um, two very small atoms and they were trying to push them together in a process, a reaction, a nuclear reaction called fusion. And they announced that they had successfully done that. Now, fusion has been kind of the holy grail of the energy industry for a long, long time. This is different than fission. Fission is where we take one large atom, we split it in two, and we have two atoms, and a lot of energy comes out of that at that time. That's what powers nuclear power plants. That's the process that's used. Fusion is taking two small atoms and putting them together, and it produces even more energy than fission. And it also has the side benefit of not producing nuclear waste, which is huge. So this, this holy grail of energy has been sought since the 1950s. I don't know how long this laboratory has been working on this project, but it is a really big deal. There's a, a, an international group in France um, that has been working on fusion from a different perspective for 35 years. And they continue to move forward trying to accomplish this. They haven't done it yet. Why have billions of dollars been spent on this process? Well, regular energy is, is, pales in comparison to nuclear energy from a productivity standpoint. A, a normal uh, fission, which is occurring today, produces four million times the amount of energy as a chemical reaction from burning coal, gas, or oil four million times as much with the same amount of matter. That's astounding. Fusion does four times more than fission. So 16 times more energy produced from fusion, speculation, because we haven't really accomplished it, other than what this laboratory just did, than traditional means of producing energy. So you can see why people are interested in this. This would revolutionize the energy industry. Now, I have just told you everything I know about fusion. I am not a science person at all. But this concept of power was really intriguing to me. I I mean, for me, on a daily basis, my concern about electricity is making sure my phone is charged. 
because if my phone goes dead, my world is like really turned upside down. I, you need electricity in your phone in order for it to operate. So we just need to make sure it's plugged into a power source. I pay a lot of attention to that. Sometimes I plug it in overnight, sometimes I plug it in in my car, plug it in on my nightstand or whatever. Just turning now to spiritual analogy there. How often are we plugged into God's word? We have a power source that is enormous, that is available to us to allow us to have a relationship with God himself. And how often are we plugging into that? It provides more power than these scientists could possibly dream of with the nuclear reaction of fusion. And if we are not plugged into God's word, we are not going to experience God's power. We are going to be like my poor iPhone, which goes dead because I don't plug it in. We are going to be powerless. So this morning, as we continue our series on God's word, we are going to be looking at the power of God's word. And we will see that our powerful God uses his powerful word to empower us, his powerless people. The things that we can do on our own are so insignificant compared to what God wants to do through us. And so you may ask, fair question, so just how powerful is God's word? And well, for starters, as as there was an allusion to this in Sunday school, which is great, God spoke and all of creation leapt into existence. He spoke and life was created and matter was created. You see that in Genesis chapter one. In Hebrews chapter one, the writer focuses on that creative power and he talks about how the son of God holds all of creation together by the word of his power. He says one word and all of those molecules of all matter fly apart. It's powerful. What practical effect does this have on us? And so we're gonna look at three areas of practical effect of God's powerful word. And the first one is that God's word has the power to save us. The power to save us. We're going to begin our look in scripture in John chapter 1. We're going to look at two concepts of power. The first from John 1, the next from Romans 1. So from John 1, we're going to see power in the sense of authority. Authority to become God's children. Now, to get some context for where we're going with this, which is really verses 11 and 12, we need to start at the beginning of John's gospel and read a few verses. So, John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, so we're seeing now that the Word is a person, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, that is, He, The word of God is the creative agent that caused creation to occur. And without him was not anything made that was made. Creation didn't happen in any other way except through the word. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Now this word, word, is the Greek word transliterated logos, L-O-G-O-S. And here it refers to Jesus He is referred to as the living word. And we learned that Jesus always existed. Jesus was with God and Jesus is in fact God. That's the point that John was proving in his gospel. And Jesus was the catalyst of creation. 
And at the end here in verse 4, we see that in Jesus was life. He is the source of life. He created life. He created physical life. And he creates and makes available spiritual life as well. So God's spoken word that resulted in creation is now manifested in the living word, Jesus Christ. But John is leading us to a larger point that Jesus Christ is the only way to life. He's the only way that we can have a relationship with our powerful God. And he describes that as becoming children of God. So we drop down to verses 11 and 12 of John 1. And it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The word right as used in this verse is more of an expression of authority than it is ability. On our own, we have no authority to become the children of God. We have no door to the key of heaven that we can put in and unlock and open and go in in ourselves. We do not possess that key. We have no ability to become the children of God. We have no power to open that door. We need someone who has both, both the authority to make us God's children and the power to make us his children. And Jesus is the one. He is the only one with the authority and power to save us. His authority is derived from who he is. He is God. He's sovereign. He's Lord. He is, he is part of the Godhead. And his power is shown through what he did for us in salvation, his death and resurrection. And God's word has the authority to grant salvation. It also has the power to give it. And so to, for the power, let's look now to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. God's word has the power to save us from our sin. Paul elaborated on this power in Romans chapter 1. He refers to the gospel several times in this chapter. And a very familiar verse, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Why would I not be ashamed? He answers the question. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul identifies a particular part of God's word as being the source of the power of salvation. And that particular part of God's word is the gospel. This word gospel means glad tidings or good news. It could be good news about a lot of things, but in this particular usage, it's good news about salvation. Good news that salvation is available. Good news that salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. This is what we call the gospel. The good news is that this gospel, this salvation is available to all who believe. All, as John 1 said, who receive him. And the result being, because of belief in him, Jesus' death and resurrection provides salvation for us. This gospel powers salvation. This word power you may have heard in the past 
comes from the Greek word that is, trans, that is transliterated dunamis, which sounds an awful lot like our English word dynamite. Dynamite was invented ironically by Alfred Nobel, the person who funded the Nobel Peace Prize. Dynamite was named that because of its explosive power. The gospel has inherent explosive power to save us, to do something that we can't do for ourselves, to do for us what we can't do for each other, to do for us what only God can do. So even as God powerfully spoke and created physical life in Genesis 1, the gospel powerfully speaks and gives us spiritual life through the gospel. God's word is powerful because it can save us. Our powerful God uses his powerful word to save us from our sins, to empower our salvation. Now, physically alive through God's creative power and spiritually alive through the gospel's saving power, God's powerful word is not done with us, not remotely. God didn't save us just so that we could be saved. He saved us so that we could have fellowship with him. And fellowship with him being in the image of Jesus Christ. And so he gave God's word the power to defend us from sin. God's word is powerful because it is God's word. It is powerful because of who said it. God said it. And God gave his word to us. And so he shows us and he tells us in his word how we can defend ourselves from sin. And that is by using God's word. In this first set of verses, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, Pastor John touched on briefly a couple weeks ago. But let's just read them together again and see how it applies in this context. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might sin against you. We all face temptation. Our temptations, James tells us, are customized so that they will be effective and make us sin. Our own hearts are sinful and they take us down paths of temptation to lure us away from fellowship with God, away from God's path. The psalmist here expresses a desire to keep his way pure. He wants to stay on God's path. He doesn't want to sin. He knows himself. And as a result, what does he do? He spends time in God's word. He plugs into the power source of God's word, so much so that he memorizes it. He says, I store up your word in my heart. His heart is like a barn and God's word is taken and it's harvested and it's brought into the barn and it's stored up there for future use. The more that temptation comes our way, the more we need a storehouse of God's word to keep us from yielding to temptation and sin. Sometimes we may feel like temptation is more than we can bear. Temptation to sin in our own customized way. We may feel that we are powerless to resist it, that we just give up and give in. That's because we're trying on our own. We aren't strong enough, frankly. Just as we are not strong enough 
to save ourselves. We're not strong enough to overcome temptation in our own lives. Yes, some of us may have more self-discipline than others, but self-discipline alone is not power. Avoidance of situations may help us not sin, and I applaud that when we take those efforts. But just avoidance of situations isn't power. It's a good strategy, but it's not power. The only power that we have against sin is through God's word. And when we take it and store it up in our lives, we give the Holy Spirit fuel to use to fight temptation. We need to keep our spiritual battery charged with the power of God's word. We need to plug into that power source and we need to do it daily. We're given a terrific example in scripture of how this works. In Matthew chapter 4, our next passage, we see that this power of God's word is able to defend us when facing temptation. We talked about this briefly in Sunday school last week. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 gives us the account of Jesus being led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice that it was the Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He undergoes 40 days of fasting. He's physically weak at this point. And the devil knows exactly when to attack. Because sometimes physical weakness can equate to spiritual weakness. They often can go hand in hand. And we're told of three temptations that the devil brings before our Lord. And in each instance, Jesus reacts the same way. He doesn't say, through my own self-discipline and willpower, I will overcome this. He was the son of God. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He gives us an example to follow. What does he do? There's a common thread in Jesus' answer in verses 4, 7, and 10. I put them on the screen here. After the first temptation, Jesus answered, it is written, and then he quotes scripture from Deuteronomy. In verse 7, he does the same thing. Again, it is written. In verse 10, he goes further and he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written. He goes to God's word and he quotes it. Why is that powerful? Because God's word is truth. Satan is coming and attacking with temptation and he's bringing lies that he wants us to believe. And if we accept the lie, we reject the truth. And we have to have God's word stored in our hearts so that we can turn to truth to fight that temptation. I was reminded of this in Sunday school this morning in in that passage in in, uh, Matthew chapter 6. And it says, don't be anxious. And why? Because your father in heaven knows. Your father in heaven cares. What do we call that? We call that truth about God. We call that truth that God knows your situation. God cares about your situation and he will solve your situation because he has the ability to do that. He's a powerful God. We fight temptation with the truth from God's word. So even though Jesus was physically depleted, he was spiritually full. His battery pack was fully charged because he was plugged into the power source of God's word. If I could say that respectfully. God empowers his people to defend against temptation by using his powerful word. But God's word is not just a defensive weapon. Some of you may be thinking about this verse already, Ephesians chapter 6. God's word is powerful because it arms us to fight the battle. 
In this passage of Ephesians 6, we're giving the, given the image, which would have been very familiar to the people in Ephesus that Paul was writing to, the image of a Roman soldier with all of his battle gear. And the soldier walking around has on his belt, he has a chest plate, he has foot gear, he has a shield. And then when battle comes, he takes up the last two pieces of armor. He takes up the helmet of salvation and he takes up the sword of of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This word sword is not what leaps to my mind immediately when I think of sword. When I think of sword, I think of the broad sword that was used in medieval times. You know, it's like three, three feet long, takes two hands to wield, something like that. That's not what this word refers to. This is a smaller sword. It might have been as short as a six-inch dagger. It could have been as long as an 18-inch short sword. This is what these Roman soldiers would have carried on them. It could be used offensively and defensively to defend themselves, particularly in close quarters combat. So what is the source of the sword? Well, it's the spirit. It's the sword of the spirit. The spirit is furnishing this weapon for the believer's battle against sin, but the sword itself is the word of God. The word of God is coming from the spirit of God. God's Spirit inspired God's Word. Human writers wrote it down so that we could know our God and what He expects of us and who He is. Here, interestingly, the word, word, is not the same word, word, (laughs) that was used in John 1. It's a different Greek word. And it refers more to the individual words of Scripture than the whole of Scripture, the complete embodiment of Scripture, which the Logos of John 1 referred to. So this perfectly shows what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. He's taking individual words of Scripture, those verses from Deuteronomy or Psalms, and he is using them to parry and defend and attack. He's using specific truth to fight temptation. God's Word powerfully protects us from sin but we have to know how to use our sword. We have to know it. It's sharp and effective to fight against the enemy. There's another verse that uses the sword example for God's word, but it uses it in a different context. The sword can be used in battle, but it can also be used in surgery. It's, the word of God is an effective scalpel, and it's used to do exploratory surgery on our hearts to show where our hearts have wandered from our God. And the purpose is to change us to be like Jesus, our Savior. The power to discern our hearts is shown in in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, same word as Ephesians 6, piercing to the division of soul and and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here, the word for word is logos again. This is the whole of Scripture. It's complete embodiment. All of Scripture is living. It's active. It's being used by the Holy Spirit to cut very carefully. The hands of the surgeon are skilled to cut into our thoughts and motives to help us to discern even things that we couldn't do on our own. It is alive. 
The same sword that is used in battle is now used in surgery. One usage for destruction, the other usage for repair. God reveals through his word what is in our hearts. As we look into the mirror of God's word, we are revealed what we, what we actually are. As we've just done in observing communion, we bow before our God and we ask, is there anything between me and you right now, God? Because I want to be holy and pure before you and have uninterrupted fellowship. And God's word is able to do that. Surgery is painful. It's no anesthetic. (laughs) This is the old-fashioned surgery. And it's open-heart surgery. It's serious. When God, our powerful God, uses his powerful word to surgically perform open-heart surgery, it reveals to us what we really love. It shows us what we need to change and how we can be more like Jesus. The next step in this change is having a clear vision of what we can be like. And God's word has the power to change the way we think. Very familiar verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So on the basis of 11 chapters of Romans, He's giving this appeal, this encouragement. He's putting his arm around these believers and he's saying, I want you to listen to this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then there's an encouragement to do three things. First of all, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the pressures of this world mold you into what it wants you to look like because that's not what Jesus wants you to look like. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind He wants us to be transformed. This isn't a pressure. This is a complete metamorphosis. This is a complete change in what we look like. And how does it happen? It happens by renewing our minds. Implied is the renewing our our minds based on 11 chapters of truth that have just been given to us. And why would we do this? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Where do we go? when we need to get our minds renewed and ourselves transformed, we go to God's word. So if we're looking at our lives today and we're saying, boy, that's ugly. That reaction was terrible. That thought was horrible. What do we need to do? We need to go to God's word and submit ourselves to the scalpel of of scripture used by the spirit. Confess that sin and renew our mind so that we can do God's will so that we can be like Jesus. And then when we, when we think like Jesus, we can speak like him too. Another familiar passage, Colossians 3, 1 verse 16. It shows us the power to transform the way we speak is, is the power of God's word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, not just weakly, not miserly, not cheaply, And how is that manifested? There's a verbal aspect to this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Again, the word for word of Christ is, the, is logos, the complete whole of Scripture. So we see that the result of being plugged into God's word is that spiritual fruit begins to be manifested in our lives because the Holy Spirit has something in that storehouse to work with now. And it takes the truth of God's word and applies it in our hearts and it comes out in this kind of fruit, in the teaching and admonishing one another. It comes out in singing. It comes out in thankfulness, grateful hearts. All of this happens when we let God's word dwell in us reach richly. We need to let God's word make its home in us. Not one of those tiny houses that you see on HGTV, which looks so cute. We're talking mansion. That's how we need God's word to be dwelling in us. God's word is powerful because it produces spiritual fruit. Now, has all of this seemed a bit theoretical? Has all of this seemed impractical? Has all of this seemed like that group in Europe who for 35 years have chased the elusive fusion reaction? Perhaps your battery's running a little low. One of the things as elders that we've just been very excited about is your acceptance of our encouragement to be spending time in God's word. We're humbled by that that you would respond and pick up that mantle that we put down and say, yes, I want to read God's word with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the excitement that we've seen in Sunday school when we come together and we talk about it. And people have obviously spent time with God because that's what the power of God can do. It can change our focus. It can change us to want to be in God's word. You know, sometimes I get busy and I forget to plug in my phone and then I look down at it and it's like, oh, it's like saying battery low, go to reserve power mode or something like that. We need that kind of reminder ourselves spiritually. If we, we all get busy. We all have times when it's hard to fit stopping and reading the Bible into our day, but it's the most important thing we can do to stay plugged into God's word. One of the lies of Satan is you're too busy to do that. We need to be plugged into God's word. Sometimes, you know, these, these phones are designed to just last a couple years, right? So that they can sell you a new one. Sometimes as the phone gets old, the battery doesn't like hold its charge as long and you gotta recharge it more often. Well, you know, I'm kind of feeling like that as I get a little older too. I need to be recharged physically a little bit more often. But you know what? I used to think that as I got older, that walking with the Lord would be easier. That it would just happen more naturally because I've done it for so long. That's not always the case. Why? Because we have to stay plugged into God's word all the time. If I just say, well, I've been a Christian for so long, I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I can read a couple verses and I'll be fine. No, you're dieting. Don't do that. You need the protein of God's word. You need to be plugged into him. And sometimes when I'm using my phone a lot, the battery goes down because it's like constantly working. Guess what? When we are ministering a lot, that's when we need more of God's word in us. It's easy for us to serve and serve and serve and serve and be drained spiritually. And we need God's word to refresh us.
So how do we plug into the power of God's word? Just real quickly here, so we have mercy on those junior church and nursery workers. I won't go into the verses themselves, but those are for your future reference. We need to plug into God's word. First of all, as, as Dave read for us, Psalm 1, verses, verse 2, the blessed man delights himself in God's word. He delights in it. It's not a chore to read God's word. There's a connection between being blessed and being in God's word. This is, there's like a direct link there. We need to immerse ourselves in God's word. In John 1.8, God told Joshua, right as he's giving him the biggest challenge of his life, the biggest challenge of the, this young Israelite nation, he says, meditate on my word day and night. Not just occasionally read it when you have time. If you have, you know, have some time after you cross the Jordan, you know, maybe take a peek at, you know, some of the, you know, Deuteronomy or something. That's not what he said. He said, meditate on my word day and night. And that will result in success. The successful man meditates, successful man spiritually meditates on God's word. And then, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, the wise man is the one that hears the words of Jesus and does it. He hears and obeys. God's word is central to our spiritual lives because it's God's communication to us. The goal that I'm, that I'm aiming at today is not just to encourage you to have a better academic understanding of scripture, not just to say, oh, I have you know, so many verses memorized. It's so that you will know our God better. We can't know God better unless we know his word better. We have to spend time in God's word because that's what he spoke to us and we need to listen and hear him and we do that by reading and meditating. Listen, we have a powerful God. He's able to do abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. We can experience that only through his powerful word. We have a powerful God. He wants to use his powerful word to empower us, his powerless people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are weak. We need your power. We need your power just to be in your word on a consistent basis. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. We pray that you... You would use your spirit now to take your word and make us more like Jesus. And we ask that you would do that so that we could be a light of the gospel here and that we could share your powerful salvation with the community around us. And we ask all this in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus. Amen.